Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters, and welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Erin Yoshi, and today we have the special guest, Christina Wong. Christina has been featured on the New York Times Off Color series, highlighting artists of color who use humor to make social statements about sometimes subtle and sometimes obvious ways that race play out in America. She's a performance artist and comedian, a writer, and she's an elected representative. She's been presented internationally, across the U.S., in the U.K., Hong Kong, and in Africa. She's been a guest on late-night shows of NBC, Comedy Central, and FX. Christina is hilarious. She has a very unique take on life. And so without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hello, Not Real Art community and family. I'm so excited because today we have the amazing Christina Wong. Christina is an actress, writer, and performance artist. I'm so excited to have her here today with us. Good morning, Christina. Good How morning, are you doing? Gosh, good to see you. Yay, great seeing you too. I'm so sorry that we aren't recording video because Christina looks amazing this morning. I so I put on magnet lashes, everybody. You, you should have. Oh my goodness. Yeah, they're missing out. It's their loss. <laughs> it really is their loss. But you know, Christina, I really, I love your work. Like I said, I'm a big fan. And, you know, I would love for you to walk us through some of like your trajectory and stuff. I just have a series of questions. You know, could you break down some of your earliest memories doing like performance art or performative art? Yes. I would love to take you through about 21 years of work in about yes. minutes. My first project, I was just reminded someone was like, we're archiving early cyber feminism and we wanted to, to your permission to post screenshots of bigbadchinesemama.com. So this was my very first project out of college. It was a fake mail order bride website where and I didn't even have the language to articulate what I was trying to articulate, but very much I came into activism. I grew up in San Francisco. I'm a third generation Chinese American, went to UCLA, was very much raised to not have an opinion on anything, just work around 
the system as much as possible. And that sucked, right? Like, why do I have to work three times harder than anyone else to get half as far? And so just sort of discovered like a language and all at once, which I think happens a lot of people when they're like, oh, I get to be angry. I can, I'm not alone. Oh, I'm not the only one. But that anger sort of gave me an ulcer, got me really sick. And I was like, I can't just be screaming no at things all day long. I have to, there has to be a way to process this that's more healthy and community generating. And that's where I found art. And I wasn't, I had done musicals and plays in high school that were all written by dead white men, you know, but I sort of discovered, oh, I didn't know you could make your own work. You could be a performance artist. You could, you can perform in bathrooms. You can, (laughs) and for me, like looking at the internet, I was like, this is, what if this was a stage, right? Like we think of performance a lot of times as like you pay for a ticket and show up, but what if my audience is a bunch of pervs looking for pornography and they stumble upon my fake mail or order bride website. <laughs> and so that sort of became an ethos of a lot of my other work, which is like, how do I trick audiences to come see me? Right. <laughs> and, and how do I find these spaces where I can comment on things? Because for the most part, I do do shows where people pay for tickets and I have one going on in New York soon or right now. But, you know, what are the other ways I can offend the Internet, but not have to be in the same room as them? And so that has been a huge body of my work. I've crashed the Miss Chinatown pageant as a fake Miss Chinatown. But I also have had a series of solo shows that to me are much more nuanced one that ran for about eight years on and off was a show called Wong Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest about depression and suicide among Asian American women. Another show was called The Wong Street Journal. I had gone to Northern Uganda to do volunteer work and do that very cliche American experience of finding myself in someone else's country. Ended up making a rap album with um, local rappers, but very much it was me having to confront what does it, my proximity of white privilege look like when I'm in another country and how do I carry that as an Asian American? So that was the Wall Street Journal. I have a bunch of web <laughs> projects. A million. Yeah, a million. One is Radical Cram School, which is uh, me teaching social justice to kids in the sort of persona of this Auntie Christina running like a Girl Scout troop. And the other project that you were saying you we're cracking up at is we discovered there's like this whole series of self-published books by white men about how to pick up Asian women. And so it's called how not to pick up Asian chicks where it's me and my, my Asian lady friends, like reading excerpts from these books and commenting aloud on them. And there are a lot of books. There were six different books that I paid for with my performance art money and are just ripe with strange wisdom. (laughs) I ran for office a few years ago because it was clear as a satirist that once Trump took office, I like had no job anymore. Like we lived in so much real life satire that I wasn't clear what was left for me to make as an artist. Right. And so I was like, oh my God, artists and politicians are switching jobs. If they're going to take their job, my job, I'll take theirs and I'll run for office. So I ran and I now hold a local office in Koreatown. I'm in a the Subdistrict 5 rep of the Wilshire Center Koreatown Neighborhood Council, which basically means I'm unpaid and go to meetings once a month and I represent my half square mile. <laughs> We're mostly advisory committee. So we do that. And I created a show called Christina Wong for Public Office, which was all sort of about this journey I made to deciding to run for office and how much that began to look like a one person show. I'm sort of convinced that politicians are essentially performance artists and that whole experience sort of confirmed it for me. And during the pandemic, I ran a mask sewing group called the Auntie Sewing Squad 
there weren't enough PPE and mask wearing. It was a fairly foreign thing. Only a year and three fourths. No, wait, how many months ago was this? Like 18 months ago? <laughs> the right. idea of wearing a mask was so weird. And there were no masks on the market. And all the cargo containers from China that might have had the masks were getting here. So suddenly we were like recreating American manufacturing, trying to get masks on the most vulnerable of faces. And that was supposed to be a three-week stopgap of a project that went on for 17 months. And it became a group with 800 aunties across 33 states. And we were suddenly doing relief drives and transporting hundreds of thousands of dollars in uh, medical and hygiene supplies to farm workers and indigenous communities. And that is the subject of my new show, Christina Wong Sweatshop Overlord, which is at New York Theater Workshop in East Village in New York City, where I am now. (laughs) Obviously, I'm now because the show has to happen with me. But it has been a crazy last few years. And the pandemic was an insane time. And I, I had no idea what mutual aid even was. Before this, I never worked in the garment industry. I did sew my set pieces. I'd never done relief work. And it was like a crash course in doing it. And a lot of our group is led by a lot of artists. And I can tell you that being artists, (laughs) running a shadow FEMA, as we like to say, (laughs) it was like we were so effective that it got to the point that people from government agencies were asking us for help. Wow. Um, so if that is any evidence of how broken these existing systems were and how how much we were able to fill in. So that is a fast. That fast. was a fast track through <laughs> so much many years, years, so many years and ideas and thoughts. And I would just love to unpack some of them because there's just so many sure. gems in here. And, you know, I guess if we could go back to your pageant when you crashed the pageant which i think is amazing because in asian culture in asian american culture pageants are huge i mean they are huge it's like the thing to do you know it's like you want to go to the pageant you want to see the who's running who's winning like pretty who's perfect looking yeah Yeah. as you're getting groomed as a young woman they're like could you be in a pageant like i remember my grandma saying like maybe one day you'll be in a pageant and i'm like why why would i want to do that and seeing miss chinatown and miss chinatown waving at me from the float and my parents and one day you could be miss chinatown and it was like oh fuck you know because like how am i supposed to be go from being raised to be completely sexless completely sexually oppressed to turning on a dime, being the sexy Miss Chinatown and being perfect and bilingual and play the piano. And I was like super stressed out. So, (laughs) so basically I created a character called Fanny Wong, former Miss Chinatown, second runner up. And I would just show up at places where the Miss Chinatown court was. And I didn't actually crash the pageant itself. I made it to the lobby before I was escorted out. (laughs) But I did crash other events where the actual court was doing celebrity appearances. And I would just sort of sign autographs alongside them. It's amazing. I think it's so (laughs) powerful because especially in our community, it really is. It's like the thing. I remember seeing the pageant booklets growing up and who's running and like you know my family would take their internal vote on who they felt like Mm -hmm. should win or my grandma would put a book on my head and tell me to walk down the hallway so that maybe I could walk like a pageant girl one day and I was like this is so difficult like why would I need to do this or what's your talent you know and I'm like oh great now I have to figure out a talent to be able to do this 
pageant. As, oh it's, my God. It just gets really ridiculous. So I love this idea. I think it's hilarious. Yeah, everyone should crash pageants. Plus, so expensive to actually run in the pageant. If you're going to be really Chinese about this, do it on the free tip. Show up. Don't pay. Push your way in. Like, let's be real Chinese about this. Right, right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, so Wong flew over the cuckoo nest. What yeah. was this about? Break it down. Yes. So, okay, I like to say that in most of my shows, I play a version of myself named Christina Wong, who is this martyr out to set the world. This is like a recurring motif in most of my shows is like, I'll fix it. Like even the auntie sewing squad, I'll fix it. I'll sew it. I it was like 2004 ish. I was trying to figure out what is my great touring show going to be that will will make everyone want to book me on their stages. Like it was half ego, but also half what I was interested in. I've always been super insanely depressed. I think I'm much better now, maybe, but that's the Prozac talking. But I remember reading about Irish Chang's death. She's a, a Chinese American historian who wrote about the rape of Nanking and wrote about really intense historical atrocities in Asian and Asian American communities. And I remember her just, she to me was like a Miss Chinatown, right? Like she was like this kind of, this accomplished Chinese American woman and so in ways bulletproof and amazing. And I remember her talking about the rape of Nanking at UCLA where when I was a student saying that she had to turn down writing a story about the Korean comfort women or uh, Korean women were basically used as sex slaves by the Japanese Imperial Army and saying she had to turn down writing a story about that because she needed to guard herself emotionally. And I had never heard that before this term. Like now there's much more talk about I have to protect myself. I have to, I have to do this for my mental health. That didn't exist in the 90s when I was in college. It was like, go, 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 you know, be successful at all costs. I remember telling my mother about how my friend's cousin didn't get into Berkeley and she became so ill. She went to a mental health like hospital. And I told this to my mom sort of as a way to say, lay off me a bit. And the first thing my mom was said, well, what were her SAT scores? Right. Like there were no... <laughs> There was like, so to hear an Asian woman say, I have to sort of protect myself emotionally was like a significant thing to hear at the time, because even going to see a therapist in the late nineties was a very foreign concept still is, I think for a lot of people who are of color, like what happens in these sessions? Like it's too expensive to go. My like not being, being happy is not worth a hundred dollars an hour or you know, whatever this stuff costs. So Okay, to fast forward, Iris Chang commits suicide in, I think, 2003, 2004. And that had a huge effect on me and a lot of other Asian American women. And I remember reading an article about her death and her life and thinking, wow, she couldn't separate herself from the things she wrote about. So that stuck with me. I had a little bit of a nervous breakdown after that. But I remember like very triumphantly saying to the world, I'm going to do a show about depression and suicide. And it's going to be based on research on other people outside the Wong family. Like to me, it was not going to be a show about me. It was like going to be some show that addressed this issue yet wasn't about me. And I remember my mom saying, I'm so proud of you getting all these grants to work on the show. I'm going to bring everyone to come see it. Don't talk about me in the show. And it was just like... I was basically setting myself up for an impossible task. How as an Asian American woman was I going to 
talk about this, but not at all talk about myself, not talk about my mother, not talk about like (laughs) family, (laughs) anything personal and just make this like a clinical, whatever. I don't have a psychology degree. I I never even took a psychology class in college. And yet I was convinced I was going to do the show. And so much of the stress of like how to talk about this thing that we don't talk about made its way into what the show looks like. So the show ends up looking like Christina Wong, the character comes on stage and says, I'm doing the show. It's about depression and suicide. It's all fiction though. It's all fiction based on other women outside the Wong family. I can do it though. I'm going to fix it. And I'm the self-assured, like high achiever, Christina in high school character. Right. And I'm like literally like falling apart at the seams. I like to say that because it's a sewing thing. Falling apart at the seams. My costume is unraveling. Um, (laughs) There's all this unfinished knitting in the audience that's like hanging above the audience that's slowly unraveling. And we keep checking in with the dramatic arc of fiction to see how the show is coming along. Are we close to the resolution? No, we're still the crisis. We're still the crisis. We're still. So it becomes sort of a metaphor for how fictionalizing our lives or fictionalizing that every, no, it's all, I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. No, 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 I don't need help is actually what is tearing us apart. Right. And also this sort of fiction that so much of when I was telling people I was working on the show, people were like, Oh, Asian women are committing suicide or, or depressed. They seem fine. They seem fine to me. Right. <laughs> you know, because we're just one monolith of have it together. And so a lot of that show was about kind of tapping away at at this fiction that we've been given for what our lives look like, that we are supposed to be Miss Chinatown, that we're supposed to be these kind of perfect, immovable people who are always taking charge. That was a really hard show for me to do. I fell apart multiple times doing it. And after touring it on and off for eight years, which I don't recommend anybody do with a live theater show about depression, especially, and that where you play a character version of yourself, I began to feel like like a character version of me. And so much in me trying to market the show, I would tell venues like, this is a great tool to fix this problem, but like no one show or book or anything can fix it. Like mental health is a lifelong journey. And I began to feel like an ambulance chaser and I was being booked at places where suicides, student suicides happen. And okay, here comes Christina's show, you know, and I was very honored, right, to hold that space, but also not, in a good position myself to constantly confront that. And I wasn't seeing the therapist. Like I had had so many bad experiences. I, I now have better therapists and know what to ask for 20 years later. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I was falling apart during the show, which led me to going to Uganda and you know, <laughs> work and, and realizing that with future work, I guess I don't want to just mind my pain, but also just want to have these experiences that I don't know what's at the other end and then make a show. So that's that show and what it is. Yeah, it's so incredibly powerful, I think, to be so vulnerable because, you know, I definitely believe like through your vulnerability, other people can be more vulnerable. Other people can be more honest. And especially, you know, in our Asian American community or Asian community, it's like folks don't talk about mental health, folks. It's so silent, you know, it's like, it's very hush hush. It's like, figure it out. We'll just work harder, you know? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just even seeing a therapist is like a super shameful thing. Right. And yeah, a sign of weakness. And I mean, my my mother told me when I was 13, like, if you see a therapist, you're not going to be able to get a job when you're older. They'll find out. Right. And what (laughs) signal does that send immediately? It's like your net worth is not as 
is more valuable than your joy. Right. And, right. and it was a, it was a terrible message, but it was, right. it's real, right? She comes from that generation where it's like, why would you pay a stranger? To, why would your family come from communist China and then go off and tell strangers your secrets? Right. Like right. And especially like you, you know, you could fix it yourself, you know, like if you just try hard enough, you'll be able to fix it yourself. Yeah. And and just that thinking, I mean, I can completely relate. I feel like my family is very similar in that, you know, now as they've gotten, I think as we've gotten older, it's definitely changed generationally, but that generation very much, it was like, you just keep it a secret. You bury it with pride, you know? Yeah, <laughs> until it kills so, you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, that kind of segues over into this amazing project you did in Uganda, which when I started to dig into this, I was like, wait, what? She goes there for self-help and and you did this, <laughs> but also like you were volunteering to do this volunteer. amazing project. Yes. I thought that the show was going to be, I called it the Wall Street Journal. Before, like I named the show before I even had the show. And that's this is a lot of my shows. I was like, let me pitch a show and then write it up until opening night um, is I thought it would be about the economy. I thought it'd be about, cause I was always very confused by microloans. Cause I was like, isn't this just helping poor people enter the systems of capitalism that are getting us in this mess in the first place. And that's what I thought that, that I'd be trying to unpack, but it became very clear like, Oh, I can't just show up in another country without acknowledging the dynamic, the racial dynamics of what does it mean for me as a Chinese American to be in someone else's country, helping quote, helping or volunteering, and I mean, it taught me a lot. Like, I, I guess for many years, even as a, what I think is a fairly woke activist, I I would avoid like the tense conversations around, you know, Asian and black communities and and how we benefit more from white privilege or proximity to that than, you know, other communities. And what is that? I would just sort of hide under this mantle of people of color. Right. And this whole journey, but also having real life relationships with these rappers that I still have relationships with. Uh, who are still in Uganda, who, who, you know, saw my hip hop talent in the street at the age of 35 (laughs) and and pulled me into their studio immediately to record an album, you know? (laughs) I mean, I I love this idea because I can't imagine somebody comes up to you and they're like, Hey, do you want to record this album? Like, how did this come about? And then that you were like, yes, let's go. It was my second night in Uganda. And I was like, sort of, I felt really tethered to the hotel. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like I should just go and look for some food on this. I'll find a street food stand. I'll just remember where I'm walking. Cause it's pitch black. And now this neighborhood has, or this, this town has, has some more street lights, but it, you know, you have to usually walk around with a flashlight at night. And I come upon these boys, like making what's called chapati, which is like the, like bread. And uh, they roll it into something called Rolex, which is rolled eggs but it's called Rolex there. And anyway, I thought they were overcharging me. And I was like, don't charge the Mizunga price. And I was like screaming because I'm like very much that person abroad. Like I'm always convinced everyone's trying to overcharge me and they were laughing. And I don't know. Then we started taking photos with each other and they're like, come in, come and check out our music studio. So I follow all these boys into like this one room shack, which is a music studio. (laughs) And suddenly we were just, freestyling and recording and and basically like I would go there every day after my volunteer shift and just record music with them and and soon we had a five song album and then of course you know I was like what's the catch here and they're like can you help us build a music studio and I'm like oh (laughs) (laughs) 
because I'm such a rich American. But I, I have passed on, like, every time I would make money from the show, I'd, I'd send money back. And But that became a very complicated relationship, right? Because it was like sending money back as a Westerner, you know, and just like, I don't know. Okay, how do I start this conversation? It's a very tricky thing to to have access to capital and, and to f- figure out, like, if I just... You know, it's like I can't be a blank check. Like there, I have to figure out how to create equity. Yet I will always have more power. Right. Does that make sense? You know, it's no, a very absolutely. Thing. And it was like I had thought all the rappers would sort of share the studio, but some were like, "Well, where's my studio?" I'm like, "Oh, like," and now I'm like entering their politics, right? Of, of like, am I Group supposed dynamics. to more than this one? Yeah. Oh my god. Right. Right. Um, but I, I mean, I was totally taken back because. I really love the idea that you go there to talk about economics. So you're already like having your economics brain in, you yeah. know, you're trying to think about this, this sort of exchange or this sort of dynamic. And then you make this rap album and then you turn it back into how it is impacts the economics of it. So it's yeah. like not even, you know, your song is kind of about money too yeah. and how that exchange goes. But that you start to get radio play on this song. It's yeah, just so the songs crazy. And, and I went back five years later and we shot music videos to go along with it. But the culture of music videos is like you WhatsApp people MP3 and maybe they play it on the bus or there's like a, a little TV in the restaurant that plays music videos. So it does play, yeah, on the radio in Northern Uganda <laughs> and stuff. It's weird. It's, it's a weird time. But it, I tell you, like, I I learned, this is what I, I mean, I had to learn about the history of Uganda, the history of Western, the, the history and failure of Western aid to places like Africa and stuff like that. And how sometimes these efforts need to be led by the people on the ground. And we have to listen, right? And this is something that I think comes up with BLM, right? Like, we're not, <laughs> you and I who are not Black should not be like showing up these meetings like, this is what we're doing. No, it's like listening to those most affected, ask for what they want and yeah, be there as they lead this movement, right? And not expect to be welcomed and not expect whatever, right? So that was sort of a crash course in what prepared me surprisingly for Auntie Sewing Squad, right? Where we're <laughs> sewing masks. And like initially with the first few days when I was sewing masks, it was like a very all health matters thing for me because no one had a mask. And so whoever <laughs> was writing, I'd give a mask. And then after a while I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> Some of you have the means to figure this out, but right. a lot of people don't. So I, I have to, I think because my effort is finite and my time is finite, even though I've been giving a hell of a lot of it, we have to figure out how to direct this to people who are going to get hit the worst so it can have the most impact. Right. Yeah. Right. No, I think that's super powerful. And I love that you just like, this needs to be done. So let's just do it. You know, like we could do it ourselves like overnight. I think in a similar way, like I didn't know how to sew, but I was like, there are no masks available. We need masks, you know? And I think luckily, like we don't have, like masks are normalized in Japan, you know, it's not a big deal. Everybody wears masks just because of pollution. So it's like, for us, it's like, okay, yeah, let's just get a mask. Why would you not wear it? It's not a big deal. But you know, right away, I I started sewing masks for just my family and a few friends because I was like, there's none available. And this makes sense. Like we just need to do it. Avoid me. I was, I yanked a reporter. I was in who was interviewing me into the squad. Like I was the way I pull in audiences for my show. I was like, you, you come here. Like, I love it. How did you, I love how it. Did you escape my grip? 
I don't. You know, I was riding low on the radar. You know why it is? It's because I had a baby. I actually had a baby, so I'm a mom now, and so she was like pretty new. So I was riding under the radar. I did not care. I was like, (laughs) you would have pulled me. You still have a month behind the machine. Yeah, I would have been convinced. I would have been convinced. I would have been like, well, she's asking. I'm down. Um, yeah, but no, that's why I was kind of writing low on the radar with things as being a new mom at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a COVID baby, but you know. know. Anyway, so I wanted to also date. Okay, so one of the first times I ever saw you perform, you performed as a vagina. Yes. And can you break that down some sewing. of the... That was a home it, so made that costume on my sewing machine. I mean, it's an amazing costume. Well, it's making medical equipment, Erin. <laughs> well, see, that's the most amazing thing is that you use that talent and it just translated over, know. you know, like, <laughs> the skill set yeah. you have, it just can go anywhere. But yeah, so break down some of the thinking behind that. I mean, I like when I even saw that you did this, the death of the white penis, the white male penis. Oh, yes. And I was like, oh, my goodness. OK, this oh, is amazing. I got a, lot of, a lot of the right wingers get up there. I feel like in my best of satire, like the crazy right wingers are like, oh, my God, snapshot. Like it's like their boogeyman come to life. They're like, oh, the they, fear. Really, they, want they really want to kill us. And I'm like, no, they want to Lorena vomit us. <laughs> <laughs> so I did a few pieces. So the vagina costume came about because I made this video with Tani Akeda where we were like, we, let's shoot something together. And, and I was always, I'm always like, ugh, when people are like, when white people especially are like, oh, I'm not racist. I dated a black woman once or my first, you know, but this is like not racist by proximity, but the dating thing is the worst to me. It's like, you don't become anti-racist when you stick your dick into a woman of color's vagina. There's no logic to this. So, but we're like, but as a satirist, what I like to do is go, okay, let's look at this illogic and let's, break down if this was true what else would be true so if a white man sticks his dick into an asian woman is bell hooks inside the vagina is reading like anti-racist theory is it like how does this work right that just by nature of what your dick is attracted to unworks all this stuff. So we were like, well, let's go full out. Let's dress me like a giant vagina. Let's make a giant dick that fucks the vagina. And then we'll make me as an old lady inside the vagina reading political theory to this big penis that's like smashing in. You may need a trigger warning on this interview. <laughs> anyway, so I had that left over, right? I was, uh, <laughs> I had the giant penis. And I had always thought like, because I've watched a lot of like terrible on the nose performance art. That's like, fuck you, take back your gaze, take back this, take back. Don't look at me. Like, and I, I watched a lot of that in college where people are just screaming at like this invisible oppressor in the room. And I was like, I always had thought, wouldn't it be full on great if we just have a full on terrible piece where let's like actually like beat up a white man's penis on stage, which somehow became this funeral for a white man's penis, which I did at the museum of contemporary art in LA for their, Stop and repeat series or is that what the name of that series was anyway but like i was like what if i come out as the vagina i do some stand-up like and that made it easier for me to do stand-up when i was introduced as christina can't make it but her vagina is willing to do some jokes for us and so i'd come out going oh so cold does someone have any vinegar to drink and so i do that and then this penis ends up on the giant penis from that same sketch ends up on stage and i go oh no it's dead it's dead 
And we just do this whole eulogy to the death of patriarchy, right? And it's not about beating anyone up. And it was really magical when we did it. Apparently people were uncomfortable. I didn't notice, but um, (laughs) (laughs) invited anyone up to give their memories of the deceased. And we thought that we'd have to have plants in the audience do it, but people actually came up and were like, like a black woman came up and was like, my hair is beautiful. My lips are not too big. And she gave like this rally cry, this like tribal, like rally cry at the end to celebrate. And like a white guy came up and I was like, oh, what's this going to go? And it was sort of like him acknowledging his privilege. And then we, like I did quotes from Macklemore and Woody Allen, like in lieu of Bible quotes, you know, that you would get. It was just so dumb and funny, but it (laughs) angered a lot of people who just only saw the photos. They're like, she's calling upon the death of white men. She was (laughs) murdered. And I'm like, okay, okay, snowflake, chill out. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, that's very powerful. I mean, I definitely, I saw the photos and then I started digging in a little bit deeper and I just, it's really a powerful thing, the death of patriarchy. So, so thank you. Thank you as a woman of color. Thank you for that tribute. (laughs) Another one, I think early on that you explored, which I thought was really amazing, was you set up, it was like a TV. I don't know if it was a show or if it was just a series of videos. It was about going on dates with white men who had Asian fetishes. That, yes, I was on a reality TV show and that came out of an interview I did with Fusion and that was not staged. They just asked me to be the the other commentator. And I really hate having to speak from a place of history and scholarship in a fraction of four minutes in these interviews because I'm not, I think I'm smart, but I I just feel like the comedian in me needs to figure out the other way to address it. And, And so... I have a different relationship with satire post-Trump, though Trump is still here, you know, (laughs) and it is, but I like to go, okay, well, what's good about this kind of shitty situation? And all I had was this information that this dating app showed that people liked Asian women more than any other race on this dating app. And I was like, I I don't want to sit here and explain, well, fetishization, bad and bad and the history of, and I was like, okay, the way the comedian and me would deal with this is say, what's good about the situation? What the good situation is no matter who, how nasty or gross I am, there's some gross white guy at the end of the day who will want to get with me and feed me free food and blah, blah, blah. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do this interview and I'm going to be, no one watches this network anyway. So I'm going to be this (laughs) loud, obnoxious woman who's just like, someone wants to statistically (laughs) spit on the floor, pick my nose on camera, you know, just act super obnoxious and goes, doesn't matter. This is great. This, I could say this is bad, but this is fucking great. Like, (laughs) and just be the embodiment of what I'm not. And so that was that tactic. And that clip went really viral. And it led, I've learned the news cycle, how it works. Like if you do one, so that before the precursor to that was an essay I wrote for XOJ and called 10 whack things, white guys say to deny their Asian fetish. And it's not that I'm not that obsessed with the Asian fetish or whatever. I prefer to not be the subject of it, you know, in any dating situation, but I don't know. Like I wrote this article that was really incendiary and it just led to one thing to another, to another. And then I was in a reality show dating white guys with yellow fever and having them clean my house and come to the, (laughs) sit in the audience of my shitty performance art shows. At least that was the scenario that was on the show. And feeding me lots of food. So it was called, I want reparations for yellow fever. And yeah, the, the reparations for yellow <laughs> fever is hilarious. Cause he, he, it looks like he's just coming to a date 
And then you're like, oh, you know, yeah, let's go. But real quick, could you just help me like sweep this up and clean this? And then all of a sudden he's like cleaning your house. Mm -hmm. He has like house slippers. You're like, got him going. Yes. Get yours, Asian women. Like, I love it. I love it. It's a hilarious premise. So I, I love your spin on it. And just like you're thinking of how you kind of take these scenarios that are you know, controversial, there's pain behind them, there's historical trauma behind it. And you can kind of flip it in this really unique way to like create the humor and the comedy. And like, can you maybe even just like walk us through some of your thinking in when you're unpacking a story, when you're kind of unpacking a project, like what do you go through as you're thinking through these ideas? Yeah, it's crazy because we are still in a pandemic. And how to write about this pandemic that even the world is not processed. Right. Not everyone has had their funeral, not everyone. And trying to find what's, I guess, as the process of running like the Auntie Sewing Squad was happening. And I'm really, you know, and I really went so full force into it because I, I really did think this was the end of civilization and that we might all die because of it. And it was very scary. And then hearing about people dying and people's parents who are dying, it was so much, but I guess I'm also trying to look for those little moments of survival. How do I survive these moments or what is just so stupid? So funny. It's stupid about these moments and trying to, to spend time in there to just sort of point like, how did we end up in this dumb situation in the first place that there was no PPE? So like the search for fabric and elastic at the top of the pandemic was, it was crazy. I felt like Robinson Crusoe, but in Koreatown, you know, like literally people were dropping off bra straps. And at one point someone offered like their kids underwear and I had to like actually draw the line and and I thought about it for half a second. And I went, no, no, because I would not want to receive a mask made out of some kid's underwear, right? Like, right. like, like the level of like, how are we the most powerful nation in the world? And now our citizens are, are running around like this to make stuff happen. And so that's where some of the humor comes from is, it's just like these little moments of unpacking these, <laughs> to the desperation of it all. But also like trying to have, understand who is the real target for being laughed at. And it's not, the dead. It is not, you know, people are sick. It is, is these systems of power, right. For Mm -hmm. me that are not working. So, I mean, this was hundreds of pages of writing 504 days uh, running this group that I had to cover. It was, it was a lot. So I don't always hit. I think I find it's especially hard now when people have such short attention spans, they'll capture just one like little blip of a moment and then like just kick into cancel mode the picture for the show is me like, cause very much this show plays out like a war movie and I'm wearing like a ammo belt, right? <laughs> that soldiers wear, but instead of ammo or bullets, it's a uh, thread spools. And instead of a knife or a gun, I'm holding a rotary cutter and a pin cushion instead of a grenade. And some people have had really bad reactions to it. They're like, Oh, I don't think that sewing should be associated with such violent imagery. And I'm like, oh yeah, did you run a sewing group for 504 days? Like, have you, do you even know? (laughs) You know, like, so it's been trickier to make satirical images. Kathy Griffin can tell you it's like, it's it's very hard because sensibilities are all over the place. But I am finding myself of late embracing the earnest because I was just sort of completely lost as someone who used to kind of make fun of myself 
mm-hmm. a lot as an activist. I was like making fun of myself as an activist is just creating more screenshotable fodder for the right to come mm-hmm. after us. Mm-hmm. So I think the one thing I have seen in comedy, at least late night during the pandemic, when there was no audiences that could applaud and cheer was just sort of the quiet and mm-hmm. watching people like Colbert or Trevor Noah just really talk about the issues and not giving, letting us off the hook right away to laugh. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of, I'm always reading it and, and where laughter belongs in all this. Yeah, I really love that because it's like you kind of take your audience down a journey to like understand, you know, just like the the space, like what you're creating. And then it's like the punchlines start to unfold like later on through through it. But I really love kind of how you you kind of set it up so that you almost like walk them through the understanding first. It's like you're a historian. You have to like break down all the the layers early. I do feel like most theater artists of color now need to spend the first 15 minutes introducing and their audience to themselves in the piece and how to read it or else an audience just shows up with their own narrative based on what they think of whatever they see of the person in front of them. And that's something that artists of color I've noticed have had to do more in plays than white artists, right? They, they get to, <laughs> they can just start talking. They can just start having <laughs> a story unfold, but like so much more is like, for me, especially like when I think about Wong Fu, the cuckoo's nest, it's just like introducing the audience slowly to me and how to look at the show. Right, right. Absolutely. And especially because your take is really unique. You know, I feel like people haven't seen it that much before and definitely not in the mainstream in any way. So I could definitely see that there would be some sort of context that you have to set. But I think that that's really powerful, even just to understand that thinking, because there's so much that goes into your preparation and research. You know, I wanted to ask you, because you kind of go through all of so many things that are hard subjects to tackle and internally for yourself and otherwise, what do you do now to kind of like replenish your spirit? How do you find kind of a little bit more? Oh, this is such a good question. I, well, pre pandemic, I was like, I need to leave the country every year and have an actual vacation, not touring where I add a day, but just have a vacation. I don't do social media about personal relationships I'm in. Like I just want to keep something offline and not performative. And I tend to not, people are like, you must talk about dating a lot on your shows. And I'm like, I actually don't. It's not that interesting to me. And, (laughs) and I'm just trying to carve some sort of private space where I have a life where I'm not just talking about my career on my off hours. That's, I I don't know. And I still don't know how to do that, obviously, because I'm still single, but I'm still single. Hello. Message available. Me. Yeah. Available. And let's see what else. Korean spa I was doing before yes. the pandemic. Now I just do one-on-one massages and I live in cities where it's affordable to do. So I've been treating myself a lot to that. And yeah, just go easy, I guess, on myself. I'm very lucky. I think so much like the the system of Auntie Sewing Squad, we had a whole system of care built in because I began to worry that what was happening is we were inviting ourselves to seem expendable to people Mm -hmm. who needed our help. And so, so much of running that group was about teaching people how to care for us as we cared for Mm -hmm. them. So -hmm. it was like, okay, if we're going to be accountable to your health and we're going to go to the post office and risk our life and (laughs) expose ourselves to this virus, you, if you have the means, will send us a pizza or you will Mm -hmm. just need to acknowledge this labor. Or I'm going to post today a profile about this auntie who made Mm -hmm. this so you can understand this. So I think 
we all just have to relearn the labor involved and respect the labor involved in all our work. I think so much of like what art looks like, it looks so easy. The finished Mm -hmm. product looks easy, but the drafts, the notes, the grant writing, all that, you know, it's insane. I mean, when I read through your bio and I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, I mean, you're making it rain. You know, you've got some really amazing supporters and too. I get a lot of, of course, I can't even imagine because it's like, you know, maybe if you're lucky, maybe you get 10% and sometimes you get three or whatever it is. You know, I mean, you put out so many bids over the years to try and get the few that you get. So I was just really blown away. I knew that as I read through your roster of people that you've worked with and supported and everything and, and all the work that you've put into it, it's really commendable. So much. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Acknowledging that. You know, when people are like, oh, you just get to be yourself for a living. I'm like, oh, I'm taking my earrings off that I don't even have on and I'm going to yeah. punch you in the face. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to verbally punch you in the face. I'm taking off my rings. And I'm going to verbally punch yeah. you. <laughs> why, do you. Why do you have to go to rehearsal? You already know the show. Right. <laughs> you know, because the speeder just lights itself and right, right. Like, blah, blah, blah. Give me money. Like, like, right. <laughs> and you just get up and be yourself and it's yeah. just not, no preparation into it. Oh, I mean, I, I mean the concepts behind it, everything, I think it's really powerful. And I love the way that you kind of laid out how you really try and target like the actual root of the cause, you know, versus because I feel like it's easy to be critical, but to actually like punch back at the root of the cause is it takes so much. I'm an elected official now. And I, (laughs) I think there is power. I'm not saying that people should not run for office, but I think it's a combination of being this two personas, both the politician and the person outside that identity that's making both shifts happen. Because I think we also yell at our politicians a lot, but I think the system is set up to be very slow, you know, I mean, which is a good and bad thing, right? We don't want tyranny. We don't want, but it, you know, (laughs) not to the point that the government was asking us for masks because it took them so long to ask themselves for the resources to produce masks. So, yeah, I do feel like there's a lot to be said in mutual aid, which I've learned is just it's doing nonprofit work, but with no salaries and complete anarchy and and getting out because even that nonprofits have tons of red tape. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So where do you like pull your inspiration from? Obviously, a lot of it seems from life, but, you know, where when something speaks to you, kind of where do you pull that from? I think a lot of it is like, what am I obsessed with at this moment? And what is most of my time being spent with and working on? I I remember at the top of the pandemic, people were like, Christina, this will just be a topic for our show. And I'm like, ugh, no one wants to watch a show about this. Now I'm doing a show about this. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, I, was just, I, I had thought, and I, and I think the sentiment with a lot of artists is this love-hate relationship with what are we supposed to do about the pandemic and our artwork? And I think for some people, they don't want to overly sentimentalize or spend more time in it than we already have to. But for me, it was like, once I started running this group and I was just like looking at, in 10 days, I went from like, you know, cutting up a t-shirt on my floor to like, I was on the phone with the Navajo Nation and with, with Garmin manufacturers. And I was just like, how did this happen? I don't do this for a living. Like, I don't, <laughs> and it was almost like I couldn't avoid doing a show about it. And, and I also think I very much saw how many Asian women were part of our workforce. And I was like, I don't want this moment in history to not remember that 
Asian people weren't just carriers of this virus or whatever, or the first infected by this virus, but were actually also the people who stepped up and did a lot of solidarity work and ally work. And I just want history to remember that. So it was almost that anger that propelled me to to make this work is to just like, no one else is going to bring this into story. the way that I will, right? We have to write ourselves into existence. So, yeah. So it's a combination of like, what am I obsessed with? But also like, what do I want to shift? I've been obsessed with our food bank in Los Angeles, World Harvest Food Bank. So my next project is going to be a, believe a performative food bank project. And I don't even know what that looks like, but I, I'm so obsessed with this food bank during the uh, pandemic. They got all these donations they couldn't give to families. So they gave it to, to the aunties on the DL. And so that was expired beer that the airlines couldn't pour. CBD tinctures that they can't give away to families. Starbucks coffee. And I basically siphoned all this shit from the food bank and I was drugging up my aunties. Like I like to say, quote, unquote, drugging up my aunties with stimulants right. to keep sewing, right? Like, but it was our- <laughs> Right, like coffee and CBD. So they like can't, no pain and, and they're ready to go. <laughs> coffee, <laughs> beer. And then later Girl Scout cookies. Because like Girl oh, Scouts weren't it. selling as many cookies, right? So there's all these overstock <laughs> of cookies ended up at our food bank. But when I see that food bank, I go, there's so- it's a very unique food bank model that people can shop there and they just have so much stuff. But I realized during this pandemic that the distribution systems, like the excess sometimes exists, but the people to get them from point A to B don't exist. Right. Mm -hmm. So at one point when uh, the social worker, government worker and Alameda asked us, she was asking us for masks, dental kits and hand sanitizer. I'm like, lady, I have no pants on at my dining table and I'm reading <laughs> your email right now. Right. And you have a GOV in your fucking email. Anyway, we stocked them up with hand sanitizer from the food bank. Like how ridiculous are our systems that like, <laughs> like I don't know that this like is like the a performance artist all of a sudden is like the PPE, like you're providing PPE for the city. Like that's insane. Because it is, yeah. And I know where shit is. I know because we've done this so much. Like I have, we are still doing a car full. Like anyone who's driving from LA, I should just put this out loud. If you're driving from Phoenix to LA or Phoenix towards Gallup, New Mexico, we can fill your car with stuff from the food bank. And we have drop-off points in the Navajo Nation that we would love for you to get the stuff to. And so this has become a little hustle that we do on the side is filling back seats with diapers and stuff. <laughs> I love it. I love it. How do people... How do favorite. people find out to participate if they are driving that way? Well, you can just message us on the Auntie Sewing Squad site or just message me through my website and say, hey, I'm headed this way from LA. And then we'll, oh, I love it. we'll figure out how much room there is in your car. We'll figure out what days you're available. We'll get in contact with the people in the foundation and then we'll make this drive happen. But like, yeah, this is, I just feel like we're just in this constantly doing guerrilla warfare with the way we work. You know, it's like, like you know, like you're just you're systems. so yeah. I mean, it's like you see the need, and you're you're like naturally very scrappy. You know, you're like yeah. we'll just make it happen. Like you don't, yeah. you're not mm -hmm. waiting for anybody to tell you or yeah. providing the way. You know, you're just like yeah. creating it, and that's amazing. And I feel like so many artists do that just because we have yeah. to. We have, where you know, especially when you start out, you're like you have no resources, and you just make things happen. You know, you literally are creating like magic out of thin air, you know? And so I guess in so many ways, we, we kind of 
start off being scrappy and kind of keep that with yeah. us. Yeah, our aunties who we've had several like wrap up town hall meetings for our aunties all over the country. And one of them said, I distinctly remember like next pandemic, look for the theater people because <laughs> our, our main organizers are theater people. And we know how to like, boom, boom, boom. You, so so-and-so has one of those. Well, so, so-and-so is headed that way. And like the way we were able to organize, it felt like I was running a theater company. It felt like I was weird right. running. Yet I've never run a theater company either in my life. So I don't know. But I love it. That's artists, amazing. Artists can fix shit. So you're working on this project, Anti-Sewing Squad, Squad. right now. You're working, working, on it. working on Christina Wong's sweatshop, Overlord. Okay, Christina uh, Wong's sweatshop, Overlord, which, which is, a- is a show about the Anti-Sewing Squad. And we recently retired from sewing masks in August. We finally had to just set a date because... We just we needed to stop to take care of ourselves. We still do relief drives, and we're doing a winter coat drive for Lakota people. It's super cold. Sometimes under twenty degrees, which for those of us who live in California, we don't. <laughs> that's super cold. And there's unfortunately situations where where people just freeze to death. So we have been facilitating gifts of coats and fleece jackets to them. And yeah. breakdown sweatshop overlord. So tell us a little bit about. You know, when is it available? When can people come see this? Tell us about it. Previews on October 25th. It'll be running until they haven't announced it, but it will run to about November 28th. Right now, at least if you bought tickets, you'd only see them available to the 21st. I'm doing eight shows a week, everybody. I am going to be so tired. Oh my God. By the end of this, it's a one person show. And I would tell you, it's really fun and cathartic. And also heartbreaking because it's seen what we saw, which was how broken these systems were through the lens of of a bunch of aunties trying to get masks onto people when the government would not get masks on people or even mandate it, you know. So, but I promise you it will be cathartic and there'll be a lot of humor and pockets of joy. And really for me, it's about celebrating this community that I was able to find in the pandemic, I've never been so generous in my life. And the generosity that I witnessed in a time that was very scarce and panicky, I think really saved all of us in this moment. And by us, I mean the aunties, like just feeling that we could find power in terrible circumstances was really something. Mm-hmm. Where is it going to be? It'll be at New York Theater Workshop, which is in the East Village, 79 East 4th Street, I believe. Go to NewYorkTheaterWorkshop.com. Org.com.org. I think it's org. And tickets are cheaper the first few weeks and then they get gradually more expensive. So to, to encourage you to come earlier than later, but I'm worth it. I'm worth every penny. We also have a book every out. Penny. The aunties have a book out called The Auntie Sewing Squad, Radical Care, Racial Justice, and Mask Making. And I'm on the cover of it. University of California Press published it. And it's an anthology with contributions from a ton of our aunties beautiful pictures or just a really wonderful document of this time. I love it. Wait, just a small question. How are you doing eight shows in a week? Because when you just said that, I was like, what? That's Monday's off. And I do, I do two shows Saturday, two shows Sunday. Whoa. How do you, that's great. How do you like replenish? Yeah. Um, Well, I don't drink alcohol. Right. Anymore. I don't drive. 
I've been pretty housebound. Like I thought like, oh, cool. I get to live in New York for two months. I'm going to be Carrie Bradshaw. And, right. Oh my God. I'm like, oh, this is what it's like to have a job in New York. You're like, you have to be responsible and shit. And, but for the most part, just really kind of conserving my energy. Like I'm not, I thought I was going to have like crazy hot girl summer sex with everyone in New York. And I, <laughs> I can't, I have to like be good and like sit here and do my vocal warmups. And <laughs> so you're like that. Hey, that's hot to somebody, you know, <laughs> but also just being good to myself and like getting on a better diet while I'm here. And cause I just during the pandemic and the writing process, I stress eat a lot. I just like eat, mm. eat, eat till I want to puke. And so I, I'm seeing the pounds just come right off. <laughs> <laughs> running around the stage. But yeah, it's a lot of it is preserving kind of emotional energy. Great, great. Well, I wish you the best of luck because that's amazing. And it's about to kick off. So it's so exciting. You know, how do people, if they want to find more about you, how do they find you, Christina? Christina with a K, ChristinaWong.com. And I'm Ms. Christina Wong on Twitter and uh, Instagram. Yeah. And you can YouTube her because she has so many videos on YouTube. I binged. You could totally binge her on YouTube. It's it's a thrill. The thrill. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Christina. I super appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today and our audience. I really appreciate all the amazing work that you're doing and best of luck on your upcoming show. Congrats on your babes. Thank you. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please Press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at NotRealArtWorld.